We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Hello and welcome to a Versus Debate here in central London and a warm welcome to all of you here in the Sadler's Wells Theatre and also to all of you watching around the world online. This is the fifth event in our new series of Google Plus Versus Debates organised by Intelligence Squared. And tonight the motion up for debate is the Catholic Church is beyond redemption. Pope Francis cannot save it. The new popes inherited a church mired in allegations of child sex abuse, of corruption and of infighting. And the question is, has so much damage now been done that the church will be unable to redeem itself? Or is this merely another hurdle in the church's long 2,000-year history? And to debate these issues tonight, we have four esteemed speakers here at Sadler's Wells Theatre in London and joining us online via the Google Plus Hangout. For the motion, Dr Ronan McRae and Colm O'Gorman, and speaking against will be Peter Stanford and Father James Allison. Wherever you are, you'll get the chance to put your questions to our speakers and to make your point. And for those of you watching online, we have Hannah Black, who's in the Google Plus Hangout, who will be monitoring all of your questions and putting them to the panel on your behalf. And there's Hannah there. Uh, Remember, you can post your comments on the Google Plus Versus page, Or uh, you can comment using the hashtag VSCatholic. That's hashtag VSCatholic for any other comments. Now, your vote is going to be crucial. And as always with Intelligence Squared events, we've already asked you to vote either as you came into the hall tonight or online. And I can now reveal the pre-vote results. This means how you all felt before you'd even heard the speakers. This is a measure, if you like, of perhaps prejudice before you actually get to hear and weigh the arguments. But here's how they were this evening. This is what you thought as you came in. As it stands, 50% of this audience, uh, either here or online, are for the motion. In other words, they do believe the Catholic Church is indeed beyond uh, redemption. Uh, 30% of the audience are against that motion, disagree with that. And just 13% of you 
are as yet undecided. Uh, so there's all to play for. I look to our four speakers to try and move the needle a bit and try and pull out, pull away some of that 57% and move them over into the 30% camp and uh, fight for those all-important swing voters, those 30, 13% of undecideds. Remember, at the end of the debate, you will have a chance uh, to, uh, having heard both sides of the argument, we'll, we'll be asking you to vote uh, again to come up with your final verdict. So, without further ado, let me introduce the first speaker for the motion that the Catholic Church is beyond redemption, that Pope Francis, even he, cannot save it. Our first speaker is Dr. Ronan McRae. He is a barrister and a human rights expert. He's written extensively on the relationship between law and religion in the liberal democracies. Ronan, you have just six minutes to make your case, and after five, I will, rudely, I'm afraid, start pinging this glass to... Uh, remind you have just one more minute but here to make his opening case for the motion Ronan McRae. Thank you Jonathan and thank you all for coming. Now it's certainly not true that the Catholic Church has no positive features. Its teachings about things like poverty, selflessness, materialism are all very positive and Catholic ceremonies and art satisfy needs for ritual and um, beauty. I also think that secular bodies have real difficulty channeling charitable impulses in the same way that culturally entrenched religious institutions manage to. So why would I then say that this institution is beyond redemption? Well, by redeemable, what I mean is capable of making worthwhile contributions to public debate in a liberal democratic society. And there are three reasons I think that the church is unlikely to be able to do so. The first reason it's quite an obvious one. It's an organization that systematically excludes women from its decision-making structures is one that should have great difficulty in being taken seriously. Excluding half of humanity from your decision-making structures shows a warped view of, of gender and humanity and warps those decision-making institutions. The second point is a little more general and historical, and that's that the Catholic Church bases its claim to public influence on the idea that its tradition and teaching gives it some kind of special insight into morality. And that's a claim that the historical record doesn't bear out. We have the Inquisition, anti-Semitism, opposition to liberal democracy, closest to a host of ugly dictatorships, systematic abuse of children. Simply put, that is not a record of speaking truth to power. It's the record of an institution that has often been power-hungry, that's been too cosy with those in power, and that has used the power it has had often for really terrible ends. The Church has belatedly apologised for some of these wrongs, but what's most noticeably missing, even after the apologies, is evidence of the humility that that kind of record should provoke. And the resistance to an appropriately humble approach is where I, I want to link to my final, more substantial point. And I think the main reason that the church is going to struggle to redeem itself, is that it hasn't fully internalized the reality that in a liberal democratic system, it is just one voice amongst many. It can merely advise and not command, and it's not entitled to rights that are no greater than those given to, uh, to everybody else. So why do I think the church has not accepted those principles? Well, the first indication of a skin-deep commitment to the values of liberal democracy is the difference in the church's behaviour when it does and when it does not have political power. In Ireland, now that's lost its power, it claims it would never use the criminal law to force everybody to, uh, to comply with its teachings. But when it had political power, it used that power to ensure that to, to block access to contraception until 1993 to criminalise homosexuality. In Europe, they now say they would never use, seek to criminalise homosexuality. But in 2012, when the Human Dignity Trust tried to take a case in Belize to decriminalise homosexuality, it was the Catholic Church that sent its lawyers into court to defend the law. In these circumstances, I think it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the Church's commitment to liberal democratic values is skin deep. And linked to this is the Church's instinctive hostility to the idea that it should be treated like everybody else. The Church is a big part of the campaign that claims that failure to exempt religious individuals from anti-discrimination laws is in some way repressive. Now, there is a reasonable kind of libertarian case to say that the state shouldn't have the power to tell you who you should and shouldn't employ or who you should or shouldn't rent a hotel room to. That gives the state too much power. But that's not the case the Church has made. 
they are act- the church is actually fine with anti-discrimination laws and the coercion of conscience they involve, but as long as they only apply to other people. On their analysis, to, ho- to force a hotelier to rent a room to an interracial couple is, uh, is fine, but to force a Catholic hotelier to rent a room to a same-sex couple is oppression. Now, in other words, what they want is rights for themselves that they are not willing to give to others. So you might well ask, why obsess about these teachings rather than looking at all the other great work that the church has done? Well, two reasons. The first is that the attitude of the church in these areas says a lot about its compatibility with the basic norms of liberal democracy. But more importantly, it's not me or the press that's chosen this focus, it's the church itself. Pope Benedict said explicitly in 2006 that the church's principal focus in the public arena is ste- will be abortion, stem cells, gay rights, and the like. The church fights strongly and publicly on things like gay marriage, but is a much more discreet part of the opposition in areas such as poverty or immigration. Is this going to change? Well, Pope Francis has spoken a bit less about sexuality, a bit more about poverty than his predecessor, but he's by all accounts not open to female equality in the church. He leads an organization that shows little sign of the humility that its decidedly mixed moral record should bring. Redemption for the church can come only through deep and genuine humility and an internalization of the reality that they are just one voice amongst many. That's going to require a fundamental break with their, with their past approach. And I don't think there's any indication that that kind of change is on the cards, which is why I ask you to support the motion. Thanks. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Ronan McRae. Please do stay at the lectern because you're now going to be challenged uh, from the Google Plus Hangout uh, by Father James Allison. And Father James is a widely published Catholic theologian, author of, among other things, a brand new introduction to Christianity aimed at adults. He's an openly gay man known for politely but firmly facing down the church's stance on homosexuality. Uh, Father James, I hope you're there for us and you have six minutes in which to respond to what you've heard uh, from Dr. Ronan McRae. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Good evening. The key question which I think you raise is, uh, is there going to be, uh, is it going to be possible for us Catholic Church to be self-critical? That's uh, really the only question, I think. Um, And it's, uh, I think, a really, really difficult one. Because one of the things we're learning is that institutions of any sort at all find it very difficult to be self-critical, whether we're talking about the church or the post office or the bank or whatever, FIFA, the Olympics organization. Self-critical runnings of institutions is something which I think we in the West haven't yet got right. I don't know whether they got it right anywhere else, but I know that we in the West haven't yet got what is it like to live self-critically as an institution. Um, We have been lousy at this uh, as a Catholic Church, and we have less excuse than most, because at the centre of our teaching is the possibility we have in our midst a crucified and risen victim who is supposed to be a constant question mark to us about our own practices and particularly about our own religious practices and we are lousy at uh, hearing that teaching and applying it. Um, (coughs) So yes, I agree with you completely about that. One of the things I want to say is that I think that it's odd to think that Pope Francis could save this, turn this round. Um, I, I don't think that I would be letting anybody down if I say that I really think that Bergoglio himself would be the last person to think that he could uh, save the church because, you know, he's just become the CEO of a a complicated and conflicted institution in all the ways which uh, uh, Martin described at the beginning uh, of our our talk. Uh, He's shown some capacity already to have a, you know, take a, a, a fresh brush or fresh broom in some areas, but we'll see how long that lasts. He's a, a new CEO. Normally, CEOs aren't able to affect root and branch institutional change. I think that the things which are making it possible for a self-critical uh, living of the Catholic faith by the church are the things which affect all of us anyhow in the Western world. Vastly increased uh, ability to communicate to um, to receive and to share information 
so that we get to find out what people actually think. Father James, I'm just going to just jump in with one point, which I do think that a lot of people will be wondering about, just given the yeah. position you're taking, which is a personal one for you, which is how you reconcile your own sexuality with your own faith, given that the church you're a member of and a priest in um, would, would say its own teachings do not allow for the open position you have towards your own sexuality. I just think we need to get some clarity on your own position so we can hear... <laughs> Some more. Oh well, I mean, I've uh, just as a, I mean, there's a fundamental point. I, the, as you know, the current teaching of uh, the Catholic authorities is that being gay is an objective disorder. That's the language they use. The homosexual inclination, while not itself a sin, uh, is a more or less strong tendency towards acts which are uh, intrinsically evil. They say, and therefore it must be considered objective disorder. I think that position is completely indefensible. I think that it's perfectly clear at this stage of the 21st century that being gay or lesbian is a um, non-pathological minority variant in the human condition, rather like left-handedness. But, but if that's what you believe, then you're representing and teaching as a priest the faith, a faith that you yourself say is, or in that position anyway, is indefensible. I mean, that's, how do you square that? Oh, very easily. Um, <laughs> The, the, I mean, the, the, the problem for my church on this area is that it's got two very strong teachings, which I think, and I've made this public, are in conflict with each other. It's got a teaching about faith and reason, which actually Pope Benedict expressed very clearly in his Regensburg address, um, and the relationship between grace and nature, such that if we learn that something is, in this case we're learning that being gay is not a defect of anything else, it's simply something that is, then of course your moral and spiritual life flows from that and not in spite of it. That's perfectly standard Catholic teaching in any other sphere. They haven't yet dared to apply it. Rona McRae wants to come well, in very that, briefly. I, what I would draw from that is that it would be a disaster if governments and politicians and society listened to what the church says on these matters. They would, the Catholic Church couldn't be trusted with any political power. Once they get a whiff of it, they're in there oppressing and pushing that teaching. But, but, but strictly, but to be fair, that's not the question before us, whether the Catholic Church should have political power. But in your closing comments, Father James, just give, in a nutshell, you're there speaking, saying that the Church is not beyond redemption. Just leave us with a parting thought of why, why that is your view. Well, yeah, I mean, very much in the, for the same reason that uh, Ronan says. I think that the, the possibility of us learning how to hold the faith in a more self-critical way, which will involve, I entirely agree with him, uh, not making completely ridiculous political <laughs> involvement of the sort that we've seen with catastrophic results. Um, so okay. I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, there's, this varies very much incidentally from country to country and given the political history of each country with relation to religion in that country. And All right. That's, but anyhow, yeah, so Thank you. We're going to have plenty, plenty more time to, hear for, to come back to this and, and to hear you uh, develop some of those arguments. But for now, let's move on to uh, our second uh, speaker here in London and against the motion, and that is Peter Stanford. Peter Stanford is a prominent uh, Catholic journalist and broadcaster, a former editor of the Catholic Herald newspaper, who regularly writes and speaks about his faith and his church in the British media. And he's now going to make a case against the motion, uh, against the view that the Catholic Church is beyond redemption. Peter Stanford. Thank you. Um, I should start off by saying I'm not a, a natural evangelizer. I know that that tends to go with the territory of Christianity. Um, and so we're slightly uh, reluctant to, uh, to uh, accept this invitation. But two things, um, two things made me feel I should do it. Uh, the first was a very simple uh, thought that many Catholics are rather um, impressed by Pope Francis so far and have great hope that, that, that he may be able to bring about reform. He certainly talked about that. So to write him off at the very beginning of his papacy just seems uh, give the man a chance really. Um, and the second point, really, is that I fundamentally believe that no human being or no human institution uh, can possibly be beyond redemption. Now, the reason that I think that um, is because I'm, I'm Catholic, and you know, we, can, we can swap around the words redemption, reform, rehabilitation. Um, and I'm not saying that is a unique position to people who are uh, uh, religious. Uh, I think the moment we start 
saying any human being or human institution is beyond redemption. We're somehow damning our own humanity as well. We're, we're, we're casting a slur over ourselves. So, so those, those words rather caught my uh, imagination. So here I am. Um, the Catholic Church, by that definition, is a human institution. Um, it is full of 1.2 billion people and growing. Um, and I think perhaps we need to specify just at the start what, what exactly the Catholic Church is. And it isn't the Pope. Uh, in charge. It isn't those 115 cardinals who voted. It isn't the bishops and it isn't the priests or it is not just them. Um, between 1962 and 1965 there was a, a meeting called the Second Vatican Council where the Catholic Church defined what it was in the modern world and that remi- remains the bedrock of our teaching. And what the Second Vatican Council tells us is the Catholic Church is the people of God. We are all the Catholic Church. Uh, we all have a say in this organisation. It may not be expressed in traditional democratic form, it actually said we were all priests, as the priesthood of the laity and the clerical priesthood. But it, 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 it got away from those old distinctions. So when we talk about the Catholic Church, let's think about the people of God. Let's not just think about the institution. Um, my own background is, is Catholic from the very beginning. I've been Catholic for 50 years. Um, and I suppose what has stopped me drifting away from Catholicism, although obviously there have been periods when I have, uh, what has stopped me drifting away from Catholicism is, is the Gospels and reading the Gospels and reading what uh, Jesus Christ says in those Gospels, which seems to me uh, pretty wise, really, and a pretty good guide to trying to live our lives uh, in a a way that that has some purpose and some point. Um, And in particular, the message in the Gospels that comes over to me is that line about loving your neighbour. It's actually common to all religions. It's what they sometimes call the golden rule and is expressed in phrases like, never do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do to yourselves. And that is profoundly counterintuitive for human nature, I think. We are profoundly uh, selfish by nature, and it challenges that. Um, Now, as I say... All religions have that at their heart. So why Catholicism? Well, really, why Catholicism? Because it was what I was born with. It was what I was educated in. I didn't have a terrible experience of it. And I believe very firmly, really, in working with what you're given. Um, other people may convert, may go to other churches or whatever, but I've chosen to work with what I'm given. It doesn't make me a great evangelist, I know, but that, that's why I do it in that form. Um, so let, let's get away from this idea that the Catholic Church is a monolith as well. Um, that, is, that seems to be a view from inside and outside. So when I tell people, I'm Catholic, they'll sort of say, oh, do you use contraception then? Because the Pope says you mustn't. And they have this view that we're all sheep and the, the Pope is the shepherd and he tells us what to do. Um, look at any uh, opinion poll of Catholics. They don't, they don't agree with the Pope on end. The people of God don't always agree with the Pope on what the Pope teaches. Uh, that's a very important point to get uh, in that sense. And also from within the in, inside the Catholic Church, um, I've been told more times than I care to uh, remember, the Catholic Church is a, is a club and if you don't keep the rules you can leave. I'm usually told by people who just joined the Catholic Church, which is slightly insulting, having done it for quite a long time. Um, the idea that there are these rules and, and it's all about jumping through, I think that rather demeans the idea of the Church. It demeans any organisation to treat it like a kind of crown green bowling club and that if you don't wear the right, right colour of flannels when you're bowling your ball you can't be in the club it is something much more important that the same objection applies to that idea that, that, that people sometimes say people like me are a la carte Catholics or cafeteria Catholics they, we pick the teachings we know you know the teachings about the way you live your life and morality are not like picking between the tiramisu and the profita rolls at the cafeteria counter these are questions that Catholics live with all their lives we all live with all our lives and as Catholics we consider them, we pray about them, we listen to the teachings of our leaders, uh, we go along to the liturgy, um, we listen to what our priests say from the pulpit, but at the end of the day, we make a decision. We're not sheep in that sense. So again, let's get this idea of what the Catholic Church is right. And on some of those teachings, I think the Catholic Church gets it very, very right in terms of social justice. On some, it gets it very wrong. Um, And we've we've heard some of those examples. So yes, it's a dysfunctional organisation. Yes, it needs reform. Uh, Is it beyond redemption, no. Um, lots of negative things we hear about the, the, uh, the abuse scandal, a, a terrible slur on the Catholic Church, a terrible uh, uh, slur on the institution that claims the moral high ground. 
And I in no way at all want to uh, suggest that it isn't really the biggest crisis it's faced in modern times. Um, But I think we just need to get a sense of proportion about that. Um, Authoritative research carried out by Stanford University by uh, Professor Thomas Plant shows that about 4% of Catholic priests have been, uh, are are abusers, have been either accused or found guilty of abuse. That's 4%. There are 450,000 Catholic priests in the world. Again, really not negating it. It is the most crucial thing the new Pope has to face. He has to look honestly and deeply, in the way that Ronan was saying, I sort of agree with Ronan as well, so be self-critical about that, but it is, it is important. But let's think, too, final point about the good about the Catholic Church. There are 17% of the world's population are Catholics. The Catholic yeah. Church presents 20, um, provides 26% of the healthcare around the world. Now, this isn't nuns in Africa refusing to give out condoms. These are, as, as, as in the, the stereotype of the Catholic Church, this is practical help and assistance to people where no one else helps them. 20, mm-hmm. One in six people who go to hospital in America go to a Catholic hospital. Peter Stanford, I, I think uh, the Catholic, you, if the Catholic Church wasn't here, the world would be the poorer without it. Thank, thank you. you very much. Stay where you are. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Stay Sorry. where you are. Um, thank you for that. We, we're going now over to uh, the Google Plus Hangout where in Dublin is Colm O'Gorman, who's going to have six minutes to respond to that. Colm O'Gorman is a campaigner, writer and broadcaster, also the author of Beyond Belief, uh, that documents his experience of sexual abuse by a Catholic priest. Colm O'Gorman, you've got six minutes. You heard there uh, Peter Stanford saying he doesn't want to downplay it, he's not denying that, but saying, well, look, out of 450,000 priests, only 4% were abusers. You have personal experience of this. Perhaps um, you would want to start. Well, actually, I might start from the, from the perspective of trying to answer that question that Peter posed about what do we mean by the Catholic Church, and I'll be clear, I don't mean the people of God. Uh, so when, when I express a view that I believe, believe, I don't know, because who can know whether a, a, any individual, as Peter said, or any organization is beyond redemption, redemption is always possible. But I believe that in its current incarnation, the Catholic Church is. I'm talking about the political and legal and institutional entity, the hierarchical Catholic Church that's governed by a body of law that's two millennia old uh, and that sees itself as a, as a political entity, as a state and as a worldwide organization that's headed, in its own words, by the last elected absolute monarch uh, on earth. So that's what I'm talking about uh, as opposed to the faith. And I I should say that whilst, of course, I support uh, um, and understand uh, the approach that Peter would adopt to an exploration of his own faith, the difficulty is that I'm afraid the Vatican and indeed the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't share that particular view. Vatican II was an important moment, but Vatican II sadly has been dead for a very long time indeed. On the, question of, on, the, on the question of the prevalence of child sexual abuse, Peter was referring to the John Jay study, which was a study commissioned by the Roman Catholic bishops in the United States, which indeed did find that 4% of priests in the US had been accused of sexual crimes against children. Um, I interviewed for a documentary I made for the BBC a woman called Judge Anne Burke, who was appointed by the Catholic bishops to research or to address the issue of Catholic Church of abuse within the Roman Catholic Church in the United States. And her view was that whilst abuse wasn't epidemic, it was endemic. And we have to remember as well that the central charge against the Vatican is not that 4% of priests may have raped and abused children. The charge against the Vatican is that it knowingly covered up, colluded with, and facilitated the continuing rape and abuse of tens if not hundreds of thousands of children across the Catholic world. Peter mentioned Vatican II, 1962. It's an interesting time to reflect on. In 1963, for instance, the then Pope was, uh, had an audience with a man called uh, Father Gerald Fitzgerald. In 1948, Gerald Fitzgerald had been uh, um, allowed to found a new religious order, the Servants of the Paracletes. The Servants of the Paracletes' only function was to treat priests who had psychosexual problems. By the early 1950s, he was warning bishops that they couldn't move priests who had raped and abused children into new parishes because they'd continue to rape and abuse. And by the 1960s, he made that point directly in a report to the Vatican and to the Pope himself. And yet, track forward to the 1990s or beyond, track forward to today in Ireland, where we've had new reports emerging of uh, uh, um, the practice of safeguarding within the Catholic Church, and successive popes, cardinals and bishops try and tell us that they had no understanding of the nature of pedophilia that they had no understanding of its impact on its victims or of the psychosexual elements or, or psychological elements of offending. They had a unique understanding, well in advance of lay medicine, 
from at least the 1950s forward and the Vatican from 1963. So why do I think that the institution can be seen as being beyond redemption? Because redemption, as Peter put it, or rehabilitation, surely requires as an absolute prerequisite a recognition of the need for change and a desire to do so. There's no indication of that uh, from the Vatican. Let me put a specific point to Peter Stanford. You've said nobody is beyond redemption, but what Colm O'Gorman's saying there is, yes, but first you've got to recognise you've got a problem, and there's just no sign of that. Well, I I would say the election of Pope Francis is a sign of that. The the, the cardinals who met met and uh, elected not not one of the usual candidates, not someone who came from the same tradition as uh, John Paul II and Benedict, but someone radically different. He is is radically different. There's your first sign. There's your first sign, says Peter Stanford. Colm O'Gorman. Well, I think, first of all, I have to say, you know, I am not a cynic and I am an an, an eternally uh, hopeful and optimistic individual. And uh, when I heard uh, and more importantly saw the approach approach that the the new pope was taking, just in how he carried himself and how he spoke, I had a flutter uh, of hope and of optimism. Um, I I will never write anybody off, uh, um, any individual off. That's different to looking at a political entity, a power entity like the Roman Catholic Church. But I think it's very worrying that in, in the last couple of days in particular, and I think this speaks to some of James's point about uh, um, his ability to reconcile his position as a gay man with the church's teaching on homosexuality. In the, in, in the last couple of days, the Vatican and Pope Francis has come out supporting the very strong and repressive actions being taken against religious congregations of nuns in the United States, particularly in relation to their outreach to uh, gay communities, LGBT communities, and others in the United States. Uh, Colm O'Gorman, you won't be able to hear me pinging the glass, but we've only got a a minute. Let's just use that to hear a very quick response from Peter Stanford and then the final word from you. But the very fact those American religious congregations, other people of God, other members of the Catholic Church, are doing that outreach work surely suggests this isn't a church. Well, they are doing it. They're they're trying to stop them doing it. No, no, they're not trying to stop them. They've stopped them. And similarly, we've seen in Ireland over the last couple of years that isn't what they say. The Vatican, the, Vatican, the Vatican coming in very hard and silencing with absolute authority uh, uh, priests who, for instance, speak out progressively on issues like celibacy or married priests. We have an institution that's able to enforce with an iron fist its will when it comes down to priests speaking about things like celibacy, but that for two millennia has failed to get to grips with the issue of priests who it knew was raping and abused children. Colm O'Gorman, you've made very clear you believe the institution is beyond redemption. What about the faith itself? Just in our last ten seconds, do you consider yourself still a Catholic? No, I don't, but I should say that I not just respect but spend my life defending uh, the rights of other people to hold and express their deeply held faith or indeed non-faith. I think freedom of religion, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of belief is a fundamental principle that we need to respect. But that freedom doesn't extend to using uh, one's own beliefs to seek to enforce laws that are discriminatory, that are oppressive, that are oppressive, and that violate the rights of others. And I'm afraid the Catholic Church continues to do that at the global level. Thank you, Colm O'Gorman. We will again be able to come back to you. And thank you again to Peter and all our debaters. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Grateful for that. Now now comes the moment where we open things up with voices from our audience uh, joining those that we've heard from the panel in the debate. Uh, and the audience defined very broadly, those of you who are here in person but also uh, online through Google Plus and, in the, uh, uh, and around the world. We've, those of you who are here, we've got ushers in the stalls who will be able to take questions. And then if you're online, you can post your questions uh, onto the Versus Google Plus page. And Hannah Black, our web host, uh, is there ready to take those questions and put them uh, to the panel for you. And there's Hannah, we can see her there. Um, To start with, though, let's go to any questions or thoughts we've got here in our audience. Uh, And there I can see a hand raised and microphones coming towards you. Let's take uh, an opening question. I would just like to ask the two defenders of the church what practical steps they believe the church should take to redeem itself. Okay, why don't you kick off with that straight away, Peter Stanford? Um, what I would like to see is I think uh, if, we, if we take the particular issue of, uh, of abuse, which I do think is the, is the biggest uh, scandal uh, of, of affecting the church, what I would like to see the church do is not only what it started to do, which is to set up safeguarding mechanisms, but also to, to ask itself why this has happened. 
Um, I see no particular... I think Pope Benedict was better than Pope John Paul II in the sense that actually he stopped trying to protect the institution and realised that lifelong damage had been done to individuals. Um, but he still didn't, get, didn't ask those very, very difficult questions as to why this happened within a church which has such kind of high, high sort of expectations of everybody else in, the, in that sense, the, the hypocrisy of it. Right. So what I'd like to see is a thoroughgoing um, investigation which asks really difficult questions about Catholic teaching on sexuality, uh, Catholic power structures, they, they would be positive signs that they really want to understand what went wrong. Well, let, let's put that to the other speaker um, against the motion, which is Father James, uh, if you're still there. I, mean, the, I want to hear what you think about practical uh, steps that the church should take, but also, and it may relate to that, I mean, the kind of reform that you were calling for in your earlier contribution, surely there comes a point where if core parts of doctrine are changed, the Catholic Church is no longer recognisable as the same Catholic Church, the kind of reforms you clearly would need, given what you said to us earlier. Well, that already, I mean, excuse my saying so, that already concedes far too much. The church's teaching on the gay matter is by no stretch of the imagination a core teaching. Even by the Vatican's own definition, it's what's called a third order teaching. This is not something that's in the creed. It's not something that's, objectively speaking, very important. It's acquired a psychological importance for us in the current spheres that's obviously much greater uh, now than it should be. All right, it's so it could really be changed without fundamentally yes. changing the nature of the church. But yeah, give absolutely. us just one of the, the questioner asked for practical steps you would like to yeah. see the church take. Well, uh, yes, I, I'm, no, I'm, no great, uh, I'm no great advocate of practical steps on this because I think that it's lots of small steps. It's when we start becoming more truthful and honest and less frightened. That's the key thing. And I think that the, the, the most practical thing I would like to see is an institutional form of women being able to speak much more and much more often and with much more measurable effect in the life of the church. Perhaps women priests. That seems to be uh, women priests, but, okay. but at the very least, uh, women in charge of Roman dicasteries. Um, not, yeah. not, not quite sure what that word means, but there'll be people oh, who know, oh, know, know what they are. We've got a question over here. We're going to go to the Google Plus Hangout, I'm sure, in a minute, but we've got a question here. And hopefully a question for our speakers for the motion. Yeah, it is indeed. <laughs> question for those for the motion. Uh, given what, uh, what you've said, most of which I agree with, how come the church has so many members and is growing? All right, that's a good question. We've got 1.2 billion members uh, estimated around the world, probably the largest single organisation of, of any kind. Ronan McRae, if this is a church beyond redemption, how come it's still got this huge following? Well, it's a huge following because it's very historically entrenched in societies and very thoughtful people like Peter remain in it. Out of, I, mean, I myself, not a Catholic, but I was brought up one, feel a degree of affection and nostalgia for it. But something, lots of awful things are popular. I'm sorry to break the bad news to you. But <laughs> that, uh, and the, the tenor of the debate has been, if only it was a different organisation that had entirely different beliefs, that spoke about different things in public life and spoke about them saying exactly the opposite things of what they currently say, then it would be great and be redeemed. But there's no evidence that any of those things are going to happen. Colmore, Gorman, your view on this point that here, you know, you're saying it's beyond redemption, you haven't written off those individual people, you're very clear talking about the church and its leadership. Nevertheless, despite everything, there it is with this enormous hold on huge parts of the world and its people. There was a census done in Ireland a few years ago that, that, that uh, revealed shock, horror, that the majority of people in Ireland are Catholic. That was the identity that they used. But I think in, in many Western countries in particular, and particularly in countries like Ireland, that identity is more of a cultural than a faith-based identity. For instance, on the census, I would be taken, or in, in, in the context of the church, I would be taken as, as being Catholic. I wouldn't consider myself that anymore. Now, that's not meant to be an insult to the faith. It's just a simple matter of my lived reality, of my self-perception. So I would suggest that a fair number of those 1.2 billion people are children who were born into Catholic families where the fear of not baptizing a child for fear that if they died, they'd spend life in the eternal fires of hell was a pretty compelling reason to it was a pretty compelling reason to uh, to baptize them in the first well, instance. Peter, Peter Stanford shaking his head. We don't Peter believe that, 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 even the, 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 the hold on, Colm. Peter Stanford. Even the Vatican, this, this flawed institution, has, has actually discounted the idea of limbo now. It doesn't believe that people float around. He wasn't around talking about limbo, he was talking about the health well, itself. Well, unbaptized he was children, talking about the next unbaptized, stage on. Oh, unbaptized children went to limbo in traditional teaching. That teaching has gone, so it can reform itself. Well, no, the, 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 the teaching may be gone, but I was using it as a reason to explain. The teaching only went, I think, in the last couple of years, along with, I think, the last pronouncement that we had from Pope Benedict was that there weren't actually any animals in the stables. 
causing a widespread level of upset amongst families who have the, the tradition of placing families, uh, of, of placing animals in their stables. So people's relationship with the, with, with the institution or with the faith is very often based on a sense of cultural identity. And I think one of, the, one of the key points as well that we need to acknowledge is in the areas where the church is growing, it's growing in part because some of the political and social discourse that we have in those countries. In sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, both the evangelical churches and the Catholic churches are vying for new followers there. But if we look at, for instance, the role that the Catholic Church is playing in Uganda, where there is the most appalling public uh, uh, um, uh, violent speech uh, uh, and incredibly repressive legislation being introduced, for instance, against gay people. The Catholic Church is not covering itself in glory there. Okay, let me just stop you something. Colman Gorman is saying that for a lot of people it's just a matter of identity. Nevertheless, there are these huge growth figures in Africa and elsewhere. Yeah. This doesn't look like a church that's beyond redemption. It looks like actually an institution that's got quite a lot of vigour and life left in it. Well, I mean, I, I thought uh, there's a question of uh, continued existence and worthy of redemption. Now, generally, you get your religion from your parents, and there's very high fertility in a lot of those countries where the church's numbers are growing. Maybe its numbers of uh, adherents will grow, but that's a very different matter from whether it's worthy of redemption. So that's very patronising. That's suggesting that people in the West are, are, are perfectly capable of deciding they're not Catholic, but people in the no. developing world just become Catholic and stay that way. No, not necessarily. I mean, people Perhaps they make a choice. No, they do, many do, but in general, if you look at the statistics, if you're born into a faith, you normally die in, uh, die in it, in the Western world and elsewhere. And the, the reason, part of the reason, therefore, that the church is growing is because high fertility rates mean lots of new believers. I mean, that's, We're going to... Uh, Colm, I know you're, I can hear you're trying to get in, <laughs> but let me just remind people who are watching this online um, that you can continue to post questions and join the debate uh, on the Google Plus page and using the hashtag VS for versus VS Catholic, hashtag VS Catholic. But one of those questions, or some of those questions, are now coming in, and Hannah Black, you've got some of those, so over to you, Hannah. Okay, so a really fascinating question from Aidan on Google+. Plus. Uh, young Catholics especially are changing their faith and picking out the parts that work for them and uh, not necessarily paying attention to every detail of what the church leadership say. Um, will this lead to a transformation in the Catholic Church and will it then still be the recognisable as the same institution? And... Um, uh, another question about uh, to, directly to Peter Stanford, actually, and this is from uh, Noel McGovern on Twitter, and he asks, how can Peter believe that any human institution can be redeemed, which include the Nazi party, for example? And um, a slightly polemical question there. And just a final one from uh, Laura on Google+. Plus. Um, so uh, surely um, uh, uh, the Catholic Church is similar to many institutions in the uh, accusations levelled against it, and are we holding it to higher standards than we would to, say, the media, for example, the BBC with the Jimmy Savile case, and so on. Uh, so those are just some general questions that have come up on the online debates for the panel. All right, well, let's um, just thank you very much for those, and keep them coming, uh, hashtag VS uh, Catholic, and also on the Google Plus page, do keep those questions coming in. Let's hear some of our panellists on that. Father James, if you're still there, Father James Allison, uh, this notion that was quite interesting, somebody there tell, telling us online that people are doing this pick and choose, um, Peter Stanford called it cafeteria Catholicism. In a way, some people might, might think that you're doing something similar to that, saying, okay, this bit of teaching is indefensible but it's a third order one and it's not the main one for me if people do this more and more around the world is that a trend you would welcome people picking and choosing which bits of the faith they stick to well can i um, I, I like to challenge the notion of because the, the, this phrase cafeteria catholic that was sort of invented by theocons rather right-wing catholics in the united states as a way to try and denigrate everyone else who they disapproved of for not holding their hard line on things. So that was where the term came up. It was, it was supposed to be a boo term. I think it's worthwhile saying that there is no such thing as a Catholic who is not a cafeteria Catholic. If you, what, you couldn't have a stronger difference in style and general approach than that between Joseph Ratzinger and Carlo Mario Berlioz or Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Uh, you're talking about people who have different, sup from different plates at the same banquet. Uh, Usually there's far too much to eat, and anybody who eats all of it is going to get sick. So I think that it's, worth, it's, worth, uh, it's worth thinking about it in that way. There's no such thing as a non-cafeteria Catholic. 
Right, I like banquet Catholicism, the sort of more upmarket version. Soon we're going to have Waitrose Catholicism rather than Morrison's (laughs) Catholicism. Uh, There's obviously a class dimension to this. Peter Um, Stanford, this was put to you, uh, though, this idea that people are picking and choosing and will it in the end lead uh, to some kind of transformation. But also it came online, this uh, notion that it's pretty hard to see redemption for an institution that, yes, child abuses, but it does have that pretty murky wartime record as well that the questioner brought up, that, that you know the questions that are there about the relationship between the church and the Nazi uh, era and not doing enough to stop the Holocaust and the Argentine um, well uh, in terms of in terms of the in terms of the kind of the, the young people going back to this sort of fundamental uh, uh, question as to what is the Catholic Church um, I would hope uh, you know do you remember what the, what Pope Francis said when he came out on the balcony um, he first of all asked the crowd to uh, pray for him, and then he said he looked forward to uh, walking with us and working, working together and walking together. And I hope, and it is just a hope, uh, that the, uh, the Catholic Church will get better at listening to what Catholics say. Um, because there is this, this schism exists between uh, what Catholics do, and as uh, James has already said, there isn't a single uh, uh, Catholic around the world who has exactly precisely the same beliefs as others. And I think we have to become a more listening church and have to think of processes to, to do that. With 1.2 billion people, it, it gets rather difficult. Um, in terms of um, uh, appalling episodes in the, uh, the Catholic Church's past, yes, there, w- there were appalling episodes, but you know, there, there are equally kind of heroic figures within the Catholic Church around the time of the, the Second World War, Pope John Paul II himself, who, who rescued Jews. So I think to try and blanketly condemn an organisation, that again, it's the same point. It contains so many different people, so many different ways of being Catholic. We have, uh, I should point out, a couple of people who've been following the debate online, and they're there online. I can see them, and they will come to them soon in the, uh, via the Google Plus Hangout, so we'll hear their views too. Just uh, on that point, Ronan McRae, and it was also mentioned even the BBC and people know about that scandal involving Jimmy Savile. If you look close enough at any institution, they're going to have murky parts in their past. Peter Stanford's mentioned the complex wartime history. Put any institution under that kind of scrutiny and there are going to be some very, very problematic areas. And In a way, the Catholic Church is no different, no, no better, but also no worse. Well, the base of the Catholic Church's influence, its engagement in public life, is that it's more than that. It's not a company, it's not a shop, it's not a sports team. And you could say, is Manchester United redeemable? Well, if it became a rugby club, maybe, or it became a delicatessen. This is the, the, the whole point of <laughs> the church is that it's meant to have an insight in morality. That's how it contributes to public life, and that's manifestly what its record means it does not have. Good. At this point, with 15 minutes to go, I should tell you all that ballot boxes will soon be appearing, you, because you've now been hearing uh, those key arguments. You've got that card, I hope, with you. Uh, remember, you tear off uh, the for bit if you're voting for and the against bit if you're voting against. This is my message to people who are here live in London. But if you're online, you're also able to uh, vote. And those of you watching on YouTube, the online vote is now live on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. Um, I think, Hannah uh, Black, we, have, uh, we can go to you, perhaps to include some of those other voices that have been coming through to you. Yeah, great. I'm going to pass you over to Eleanor Rose, who's joined us here on the Google Hangout. She has a question for the panel. Uh, hi there. Um, uh, I was wondering, we touched, you touched on this uh, briefly, actually. Um, how, uh, if at all, does the Vatican, how do they practically get a sense of what their whole worldwide um, 1.2 billion congregation actually want? And to what extent does it and might it in the future influence the way that they operate? Okay, so how do they stay in should, touch with what their followers take, uh, want? Should we take one more question yes, from the Google do. Hangout? Yeah, We've also got um, Nishma here on the Google Hangout with us. And Nishma, can we hear your question as well? Okay, my question is for the whole panel, um, it's, it's a, in a time of crisis, people of other faiths are often, used, are often used as a scapegoat for economic inequality. Pope Francis is well remembered for challenging Pope Benedict in 2005 for calling the Prophet Muhammad evil and inhumane. Do you believe that this openness to interfaith dialogue will continue now that he is Pope? And can this also be a point for ref- of reform for the Catholic Church? Thanks. Thank you very much for those um, two different questions. Um, uh, Colmo Gorman, why don't you pick up that last one there, that actually in times of economic crisis, people do often turn to 
other faiths and uh, often with quite a harsh language. Um, what's your view on that and how it sits with this debate? Well, at the time of any crisis, sadly, uh, people are uh, capable of appalling acts of inhumanity towards other people on the basis of fear. We see that very often in how states, which have been champions of human rights like the US, respond to acts of terror on their own soil and how they abandon their values and, uh, and then commit appalling violations on other people. I do think that ongoing dialogue, ongoing engagement is enormously important. I think interfaith dialogue is important insofar as it advances an understanding and appreciation between those faiths. But we have seen other kinds of interfaith dialogue that are enormously challenging and difficult. For instance, the Catholic Church is rather unique as a faith in that it's not just a, a religion or a world organization. It's a, it's, a, it's a sovereign state. It is a party to negotiations and discussion at the United Nations that has uh, um, status there. And uh, its alignment, our, our, our uh, engagement, for instance, with Muslim states, the Association of Muslim States, whenever uh, advances in international human rights law that might look at issues like LGBT rights, our gender identity, our gender rights, okay. its steadfast resistance to advances in human rights protections for others based on that interfaith dialogue is a huge problem. And if I could, there's one very, very quick point that I'd, I'd just like to make, and it, it goes back to an earlier question. Very briefly, yeah. Con continued existence. The Catholic Church is around 2,000 years, and it believes it will be around for another 2,000, and it probably will be. But continued existence is very, very different indeed to the notion of redemption. And the standard that I hold the Catholic Church to, because it was a standard I learned when I was a child, was that the things that matter most in life are a commitment to truth, to honesty, to compassion, and to love. So I'll hold it to that standard. And when it's able to critically examine itself and its own conduct based on that standard and demonstrate a commitment to truth, then we're getting something close to a moment of possible redemption. But I think it's a long way away. Peter Stanford, he's setting the bar quite high there. He's saying it's not a matter of just numbers, 1.2 billion, or even staying power 2,000 years. It's a standard, it's a religious standard, really, of truth and honesty, and the Catholic Church is just not meeting it. Well, in, term, in terms of, of compassion and love, uh, let, I, I take us back to uh, the Church's teaching on social justice and the practice of what it does around the world, uh, not just for Catholics, but, but for, for, for those on the margins, the dispossessed. It is, in many ways, the voice of the voiceless on, on the world stage. Um, and Unless that, they're I, women or gay or poor or, you know... Well, they, they, uh, sorry, when it, when it speaks up for the poor and the oppressed, do you think it's any speaking up for poor and oppressed men? No, I think it, generally speaking, at times, preaches against people on the margins and it's extraordinarily punitive of certain groups of people on the margins, particularly sexual minorities and others. Well, I, th I, mean, I think, you know, you, you mentioned the example of Uganda beforehand, but if we look at other examples like Brazil, where I've, I've, I've travelled, um, you'll find the Catholic Church there championing... championing champ sorry, can't speak, um, the, uh, the, the, the popular, popular movements of people living in shanty towns, which led in the end to Lula being the president of Brazil. So, you know, it, its record isn't all negative. Can I just no, go back not. to this idea that, the, um, that Nish talked about? Yes. When she said Benedict described Mohammed as evil and inhumane, he absolutely didn't. He quoted a, he quoted a 14th century writing about Mohammed, uh, which, which he probably yes. was very yes. ill-advised to do it. But what I think is really interesting, because I think perhaps the people are being sceptical about the idea. So the previous uh, caller asked, does the church listen? Benedict did that, and within two or three days, he apologised publicly for that. He said he, he, he apologised for what had happened. So they do listen. OK, we'll pick up the question we had from our first uh, online questioner there, Ellie, who asked about uh, how a church this size, any institution this size, manages to stay in touch with the views of its very disparate, very numerous members. Uh, well, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do focus groups, unfortunately. Um, uh, and it, it has a pretty... I mean, one of the things it used to say, like this thing about the Catholic Church not being a, being a club and you had to keep to the rules, it used to say rather proudly it wasn't a democracy, um, which, uh, again, is, is part of a pretty negative past. Um, I think that is a challenge. I think one of the things that's happened uh, since Pope Francis, another hopeful sign uh, came into office, he's appointed a, a, a panel of eight cardinals um, from all around the world, representatives of different countries around the world, uh, nearly all of them relatively liberal. There's only one uh, sort of traditionalist amongst them, none of whom have, any, have had any great involvement with the Curia, with the central bureaucracy before, to channel in those sort of views on reform. Now, obviously, they're cardinals... 
they're all men, they're all old. Um, uh, so, you know, they may not be absolutely representative. But, you know, I think that the, there is the beginnings of a process where th- those views can be passed up. And again, going back to the Brazil example, what you would have in those countries is uh, you'd have your base Christian communities where people would gather. And the division between the saying the mass and listening to their priest and having a political meeting was pretty thin. So those views then get passed up. So I do think, you know, the, the process is not at all what we would recognise as a, as a reasonable reporting back process but, it's, but, but the, the rudimentaries are there and I do believe that we are beginning to see the first signs of change Father James, let's uh, bring you in on this uh, how a church of this size manages to stay meaningfully in touch with the views of its members, its followers around the world Well I think it's a question of uh, I, I see it slightly differently from Peter in this sense that I'm aware that usually the people who manage to make most noise uh, in the church and therefore express their views most forcibly are usually those the most conservative people who uh, are the ones who are able to write to the bishops, bully them into holding hard lines on things. So actually, when you talk about people being in touch with the views of people, there are a fair number of, of people who are very much in touch with the views of people who think like them. <laughs> and that's always, that's always what happens. What's really difficult is how to learn how to be in touch with the views of people who don't think like one. Uh, and that uh, gets us back to the self-critical question, which is what's really, really difficult. I'm actually with them, yeah. with Ronan and, and, and Colm on this one, at least as much as, uh, as with Peter. I think that, yes, uh, the notion of a higher standard is exactly right. Us learning how to be self-critical seems to me to be not simply a question of how to remark something. It's actually something to do with the central, it's central to the living of the gospel. How are we going to learn to be self-critical as an institution, which means learning how to listen and how not to listen, because sometimes a great deal of noise is, uh, uh, you, you know, All right. violent and hateful barrage. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure we hear some voices from our audience members, and there's a few hands up. Well, do you think it's survival is questioned? If the Europeans stop paying for it, can the centralised Catholic Church survive? Let's get the. This is going to be the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking as a Catholic, I don't mind uh, someone challenging the Catholic Church at all. But I do have a bit of a question as to how much do we feel this really has been a debate of any kind? We've got two secular liberals versus two Catholic liberals with shared presuppositions on the nature of the redemption, quote unquote, that the Catholic Church supposedly needs. I mean, the Church always needs redemption. It teaches that it does. But this happens according to Catholics, according to an objective standard, which is the Gospel of Yeshua and the Nazareth, not according to the Guardian editorial page. And yeah, we've totally ignored the case for Orthodox. Reform. The church teaches that it needs reform, and orthodox people within the church believe it does. But as a former atheist, as a former liberal who shared the views many of you have had around the table, I became a Catholic for the only justifiable reason for being a Catholic, that Catholicism is actually true, and that its teachings are life-giving, particularly and especially uh, in our society on the things that it's most controversial for, including on sexuality. Third-order teachings are not reformable ones, according okay. to, to Father. So, Thank look, this, how much has this been a real debate? Thank you. Um, let's put that to, to you, Fa- Father James. You're there on the side saying redemption, uh, you, you know, that you believe the Catholic Church can be redeemed. Here you have a speaker saying the path for that is through orthodox reform and that your kind of liberal Catholicism isn't really representative or even uh, t- true to the faith that the gentleman there yeah, was articulating. Well, I completely reject the notion of liberal Catholicism, which I don't consider myself to be a liberal Catholic at all. I'm perfectly straight down the line orthodox Catholic. Uh, there are different degrees of truth as taught by the church, and that's its own definition for that. It sets that up. It's not liberal people who decide which, whether something is first or second or third order truth. It's the church's own teaching authority that does that. So, yeah, I mean, there's one sense in which I agree with him. I think that the key question is, for when it comes to questions of redemption, the church can only conceivably be redeemed by our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's exactly what this is about. The whole question is, are we going to be able to be more capable of being the signs of that redemption in the world than we have been heretofore? And it's a tough one. (laughs) We're going to have to learn how to live out being the sign of the redemption worked in our midst by the Lord Jesus Christ far more faithfully than we have done heretofore. Thank you. Uh, Ronan McRae, what about that point that we heard right at the beginning, of the que- just before rather, the questioner saying, actually, if you look at the statistics of, of lapsed Catholics in the United States, without Europeans continuing to finance it, maybe this church actually as an institution has, has, has got serious problems 
even before you get to the theology, just as a matter of well, survival the, and finance. The way of the world, I think anything Europeans are funding is a pretty dim future. But um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I, th I, I think that the institutional survival of the church isn't really in doubt. They might have less money for uh, churches and TRs or whatever, but they, they're, they're likely to survive. I actually, this gentleman, I, I agree with you in that uh, I left the Catholic Church because I believe that those truths are untrue. And even if they are true, I think increasing numbers of people are finding them unpalatable and cruel. Uh, I, that's why, in fact, I believe there isn't a path to redemption, but I, I agree that we, we disagree on that. And I want to give a closing word to Colm O'Gorman, who's there, responding to the question, it was mainly for the organiser of the debate, but it spoke to something larger in the culture, that we beat up on the Catholic Church rather often and don't submit other faiths to this degree of scrutiny. A very brief answer, if you can, on that. Well, first of all, I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic. Yeah, thanks. I'm sympathetic to the view uh, that the, a, a debate among liberal Catholics, and I'm sorry, James, that you don't like being described as such, and amongst those who have a, a challenging view of the Catholic Church, is perhaps not quite as strident a debate as there might be with Orthodox uh, uh, Catholics. Regardless of what, of what James uh, and Peter might think, that Catholic Church sees itself as one thing, the source of absolute truth. Now, we can engage in a debate on whether or not an organization that's 2,000 years old that sees itself as above and beyond the law of independent states or the, or, or the rule of law uh, is an entity within which we're likely to see very significant corruption. But I have to say, I get weary of professions from one of the most powerful institutions on this planet and one of the oldest institutions on this planet, that they are somehow uh, in a weakened position Okay. by being objectively challenged for their conduct. I think right. that's a non-argument. Thank you. I'm sorry, that's going to have to be the closing word from our speakers. The final votes are now in. Let me just remind you how you voted before the debate for the motion that the Catholic Church is beyond redemption. Even Pope Francis, or just Pope Francis, cannot save it. 57% of you were for that motion, uh, and 30% of you were against, and 13% uh, didn't know. Now, after the debate, you've continued to uh, vote here in person in London, but also online around the world. After the debate, this has been the movement. For the motion was 57%, now 55%. Not much movement there at all. Against the motion, it was 30% when you came in. After you've heard all the arguments here presented, that figure is still 30%. <laughs> and the don't knows stand at 15%. Or the, so in other words, just 2% move from the four column into the don't know column. That's after all the sound and fury and persuasive rhetoric uh, that we did here so th in, this, uh, in this fantastic debate. So thank you all for being here this evening. You can continue the debate online uh, on the Google Plus Versus page, V-E-R-S-U-S. For now, though, I would like to thank all our speakers and our audience here and online and, of course, Intelligence Squared and Google for making all of this possible. And don't forget to follow Versus on Google Plus for news on future debates. For now, though, it's good night. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>